Well, for those who are new, we're studying 1 John. We're in a series of 1 John. So uh, let's turn to 1 John together. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 18. And this morning we're going to read to verse 28. So a fairly large section. First John 2:18. "Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Let's pray once more. Father, we we praise you and we thank you this morning. And we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this letter that you inspired John to write so long ago that's so relevant to us, that speaks to us today. And God, I pray that you would just speak to us this morning directly to each of our hearts. Let each one of us hear something from you this morning. And God, may we, may we catch what it is you're saying through John. We praise you, God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, today is May 22nd, 2011. <laughs> see that date has no significance except that it became significant because certain people predicted the coming of the Lord yesterday right 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 but we're still here we're still here right now what are we as Christians to think about that what are we as Christians to think about Harold Camping and predictions of the end of the world and end times like that? Now, the study of the end times is called eschatology. It comes from the Greek word that means the end, eschaton. And eschatology, which is the study of the end, what are we to think about that as Christians? Is that unimportant? Is eschatology unimportant? Is it irrelevant to our lives? Some people would think it's unimportant and irrelevant to our lives. They think, well... What does it matter what happens in the future? I'm probably going to be dead when it happens. What's really relevant to me is just my life right now in the present, in the present moment. Some people take that view about history, too. How many of you said or heard somebody say, well, who cares about history? That doesn't, that's so long ago, and I wasn't there, and it doesn't affect me anyway, right? Well, I think God would beg to differ. Or some people would say eschatology is only for the fanatics. It's only for those who are crazy. All that date setting and num- numerology and, and those things. Apocalyptic stuff. That's just for the fanatics. Is that true? 
Is that how we're to think about it as Christians? And I want to say that it's unnecessary for us as Christians to think that way about eschatology. It's unnecessary for us as Christians to think about the end times in a way that's crazy or fanatical or irrelevant or unimportant. In fact, Christianity is an eschatological faith. Christianity is a faith that believes in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the end times. But you don't have to believe in that in the way that is so often portrayed, right? And unfortunately, who gets all the airtime in the media? You know that there's been believers of all ages, level-headed believers, who have read the Bible and have believed in eschatology, have believed in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't get any media time because they're looking at the scripture for what it says, right? It's not insignificant that over 30% of the Bible, and I think that's a very generous number, is concerned with eschatology. And I think it's very important for us as Christians to understand the basics of eschatology so that we don't get caught up in all these uh, fanatical, irrelevant, unimportant end-time predictions and things like that. Because, unfortunately, that hurts people's lives, and it does hurt um, the, the church as well, because the world looks at that and mocks, right? But as Alan was talking to me earlier this morning, it also does open the door for us to talk. How many of you heard somebody talking about it just in the last week? I did as well. I was sitting in the bus station. There's some high school students talking about the rapture. When do you hear about that, you know? So it's good. I, I'm not sure. But understanding the basics will keep us from error. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Isn't that a wonderful thing to just think about? We sang it about it this morning, that our Lord and our Savior and our God is going to come and we're going to be with him forever. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Our topic this morning isn't eschatology. <laughs> but it's important that we look and we, we notice what eschatology truly is. It's important because to God, eschatology is important. And to John, if you notice in verse 18, John says that we are living in the end times. You know why eschatology is important? Because we are living in the end times, according to John. So you're like, well, that's just in the future. Not according to John. He says, little children, it is the last time. It is the last time. So what does that mean when he says, it is the last time? All the apostles conceived that the time that we're living in now, since Christ died, is the last time. You remember in Hebrews chapter 1, at the beginning it says, God in the past, he spoke to us by the prophets, but now in the last time, in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he's made heir of the world, Right? So he says, there's been a time change. In the past, he talked to us through the prophets, and now he speaks to us through his son in these last times. Later in the book of Hebrews, he says, Christ has appeared now at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So to the author of Hebrews, the coming of Christ to die on the cross was the end of the age. I'm going to explain that in a moment. In Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter says this also, which is very similar to the book of Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews just said. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for you. So notice how the apostles are continually connecting the last times with Christ. The author of Hebrews just did it. He said he's spoken now through his son. His son came and died. Peter now clearly indicates not that Jesus wasn't in the heart of God until 2,000 years ago. When Jesus came, it wasn't a plan B for God. It wasn't that God said, hey, I think I need to change my tactics here because the law's not working. <laughs> he was foreordained from before the foundation of the world. When God created the world, Jesus was already in his mind and in his heart. Of course, the Word was with God and was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And one more verse, which you don't have to turn to, the Apostle Paul in Timothy describes the time that he was living in and the time that we live in now is the last days when he says that, know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, right? And he's describing his own day. So he's saying, don't be shocked about this, but expect this, brothers and sisters, because this is the last time. So what does it mean that this is the last time? What the apostles mean by this is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an epoch. Do you know what an epoch is? It's a transition from one age to another. It's an event that changes things in time. And they saw that the death of Christ changed things in time so that we could call the time before Christ an age and we could call the time after Christ an age. And why it's called the last age now, the last time, the last hour, is because now we're living in the last age before the messianic age or the coming of Christ. That's why it's called the last age. Because before Christ came, it wasn't the age before the messianic time. It wasn't the age before the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. It was the suffering servant who was to come, right? The next big thing in God's program was Christ coming the first time, dying for our sins, putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and ushering in a new age by that epoch. Things have changed, brothers and sisters. Here's some things that have changed. Here's some things that are different now. God has a message for the whole world now. The last days, God has a message for the whole world. In the past, God largely ignored the other nations besides Israel, right? That's what it says. In the past, God overlooked them and, and their ignorance, and he spoke by the prophets to the people of Israel. And the prophetic message to Israel was largely just, you guys are sinning. You guys are breaking the law. You guys are committing idolatry. And it's adultery against God. This is what the law says. You're not to be doing this. You're not to be doing that. Do you know what God really requires in the law? Come on. Repent. And turn back to God. And remember what he did for you at taking you out of Egypt. And be loyal and faithful to him. Of course, even the prophets knew that something was coming to change. But that was their basic message. And it wasn't to the whole world. It was to the nation of Israel. Now, however, since Christ has come, a new age has come. And what's the message now? It isn't the old prophetic message. It's the apostolic message. It's the message not only to Israel now, but it's the message to the whole world. And that is the message of the revelation of the Father in Christ, the message that... God loves a sinful world. And that righteousness doesn't come through the law. Righteousness doesn't come through our works. Righteousness isn't about our obedience to the commandments and faithfulness to the law and commandments of God. Righteousness is all about faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. You want to be right with God? Because you need to be. That hasn't changed from the Old and the New Testaments. There's things that hasn't changed at all. But you need to be right with God my friends, you need to be right with God. If you're not right with God, then you die in your sins and you perish eternally if you're not right with God. God is a righteous God, but the way to be righteous now that's proclaimed to the whole world is righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross for our sins. Right? Everyone following me so far? Kind of a broad survey of, of history. But they see the death and resurrection of Christ as an epoch. And now they say, now it's the last time. Now we're in the last age before the kingdom of God, before the messianic age. Now John, when he speaks about the last age, there's more to this new age than simply a new covenant or a new message. But there's also new antagonism. And notice what he says in verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists whereby we know it is the last time. So John, he, he brought us one proof that we know it's the last times or the last days of the end times because of Antichrist's presence in the world. 
And John, he says, as you have heard that Antichrist will come, which means John is building upon a foundation. John is referring to what other people have taught them. And I've mentioned this before, that 1 John, it's a letter that's written to people that are already, they already have a foundation laid, probably by the Apostle Paul. Because 1 John, this letter, was written to churches in the Asia Minor, which is the churches that Paul established. And the Apostle Paul would have talked about the end times. Jesus himself talked about the end times. And John would be remembering the things that Jesus said, which was this. Jesus said, speaking about these last days, he said that many false Christs and false teachers and false prophets would arise. So John's remembering this, and he's very much echoing that. Now, what is Antichrist, or who is Antichrist? Now, this word Antichrist is actually only found in John. It's only found in John's writings. It's not found in anyone else's. And those who have, those who have been here so far for this series, we know that John uses a lot of per, particular words for his own writings, right? He uses expressions that are particular to himself. John is kind of a unique writer in his style. And this is one of those words that is unique, Antichrist. But I don't believe that the concept is unique to John, just the word. The word means against Christ, against Christ. Or some people uh, also understand it to be meaning in the place of Christ, as in a counterfeit Christ. <coughs> Which is it? It's, it's, uh, it's both. <laughs> it's against Christ, but by counterfeiting Christ, Antichrist is against the true Christ. So that's simply what Antichrist means. And there's no definite article in the Greek, which means that this is a name. It's not a thing. Antichrist is a name. He says, you've heard that Antichrist will come. He's using that as a name or as a title. The early church fathers used the word Antichrist freely to refer to that man of sin who was to come. So the prophets, Jesus, and Paul all talked about at the very end of the last days, there was coming a man. And that man is the man of sin, or the man of lawlessness. And I believe that John is seeing that, and he's denominating it as the Antichrist. And this is what the early church fathers also did. So two of the most famous early church fathers, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus is certainly very famous, maybe a little lesser famous as Hippolytus. Both of them had a connection with John. Irenaeus was a disciple of John, and Hippolytus was a disciple of Irenaeus. Both of them used the word antichrist. They probably got it from John, and they refer to the man of sin. But Antichrist, as John tells us in verse 18, isn't just a person, that it is. But it's also a principle or a spirit. A principle or a spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 3, and you'll see this concept in John 4, 3. John brings up the Antichrist again, or Antichrist again. And he says in John, 1 John, excuse me. Did I say John 4, 3? Yes. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. Excuse me. Didn't want you to turn that far. I kept hearing pages ruffling. I'm like, it's too far. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that of Antichrist, or that spirit of Antichrist, whereby you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So this explains how Antichrist is more than just an individual person. It's also a spirit or a principle. And that explains how there can be many Antichrists. There are many Antichrists in the world. There are many false teachers. There are many false Christs. There are many false prophets who foreshadow that man that's coming in the future. They embody the principle of that man. Now, we're going to talk more about what that principle is in a moment. Now, verse 19 is kind of shocking because when you hear about Antichrist, anti-Christian, anti-Jesus, anti-gospel, where do you think it would come from? 
Not the church, right? Not from among us. That's its ultimate source, right? But its local source. Verse 19. And this is something for us to pay close attention to. Because its local source is among us. It says here, they went out, they who, the Antichrists, went out from among us. They went out from among us. So everything that the, quote, church produces is that of God. I mean, he's got a name tag on his shirt. And he sings about Jesus a lot. He calls himself a Christian. I went to youth group with him. He was baptized. He took communion. He pastors. John says, they went out from among us. The Apostle Paul also warned us of this in Acts 20, a verse we've looked at many times. Paul with tears. This is obviously very important. Paul with tears, he says, that wolves will come up from your own ranks, from among you. Draw away disciples after themselves. He calls them wolves. Now, they don't look like wolves when they do show up, do they? This is the point. When the Bible calls someone a wolf, sometimes we, we take that image and we know what a wolf looks like if we watch Beauty and the Beast. We know that wolves are kind of scary and, uh, you know, ugly. And they have nasty teeth. And so we think of that, like, yeah, I'm gonna, they're awful. I'm going to know when they come. I'm going to know when these wolves show up. It's going to be easy. They're going to be snarling. And they're going to be scary. And, and even though the Bible uses that, that uh that word wolves and that image of wolves, it's the opposite, actually. It warns us it's the opposite in case. You won't be able to tell they're wolves simply by looking at them. You won't. They're going to look good. They're going to come from among you, and they're going to draw people away because they're not going to look like wolves. Who, how many people follow a wolf? A wolf who wants to eat them. Red, little Red Riding Hood, right? You go to the house, and there's a wolf in the bed. It wants to eat Little Red Riding Hood, but it's, it doesn't look like a wolf, right? It looks like it's her grandma or <laughs> Right? So we need to be alert to this, brothers and sisters, that many antichrists, many antichrists are in the world, not just a few. You know, I once, in New, when I, I'm from New Brunswick, Canada, and when I was living back in New Brunswick, Canada, I went to a seminar once, on the end times, actually, and uh, this, there was a, a teacher there who was teaching something novel, something new about the end times, and I had heard a little bit about it, so I wanted to go confirm what I had heard. I was already suspicious. Actually, I already kind of knew what he taught, and I didn't agree with it, but I wanted to hear the guy out. It was false, what he was teaching, but this is how he started his seminar. It blew me away. Couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe how many people nodded their head when he said that. He started the seminar by saying, you know, false prophets are really rare. Really rare. There's really not many. It's certainly not around here in New Brunswick, of all places. You're not going to run. Probably in your lifetime, you'll never run into one. I couldn't believe it. That's how he started his seminar. And then he began to teach his thing. And people were like nodding their head. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to run into false. I couldn't understand what he was saying. And I couldn't believe how many people nodded their head. On the contrary, John says there's many, and they don't look like wolves, so we need to be alert. But know this. In verse 19, there's an important principle here. The principle is this, that if somebody departs from the faith, not necessarily from the church, because you know we're not saying salvation is by coming to church or being a part of the group, but if someone departs from the faith, what that proves is that they were not really of the faith if they depart from the faith. That's a big debate in the Christian church, isn't it? Can a person have salvation and lose salvation? Can a person be a Christian and then walk away? And 
Well, in a sense, someone can profess to be a Christian and, and have a faith for a time, like Jesus said. But if they leave the faith, it says here, that it proves they are not really of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us because, and here's a simple fact, if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. If you're truly born again, if you're truly a believer in Jesus, if the Spirit of God has truly given you a revelation of the Father through the Son, then guess what? And this is supposed to be encouraging. You will continue with us. You will continue in the faith. True believers, true born-again believers, do not depart from the faith. And if a person, no matter how, no matter how much you thought they were a Christian, and you hear it all the time because people give their examples, right? But this guy, you don't understand this guy. This guy was like, he was really a Christian. I mean, he was at every meeting and he prayed like the best of us. He read his Bible. <laughs> he led Bible study. He seemed earnest. He was witnessing. But if he departs from the faith, it proves he was not really of us. Simple principle in 1 John 2.19. An echo of Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus says this, false Christs, false prophets will arrive, arise and deceive many. And many will be deceived because of them. And if it were even possible, then the elect would be deceived too. The deception can be so strong. It is so strong and it will be strong as we get closer to the end that if it were possible, even the elect would be saved. Even born-again believers uh, would be deceived, excuse me, would be deceived. Isn't that amazing? So deception isn't easy to detect because even born-again believers would be deceived if it were possible, but it's not. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. It's not possible. So John writes this to encourage the believers. He contrasts now believers in verse 20 with verse 19. But you believers, you believers have an anointing or an unction from the Holy One. So he, he encourages you. He says, look, if you're truly a born-again believer, if you truly have had a revelation of the Father and the Son, if you truly believe in Christ, on the contrary, it's impossible for you to be deceived. And you will remain with us. That's an encouraging thing, isn't it? Because it's God who's doing the work in us. It's God who's the author and the finisher of our faith. How many of you have ever had that, that moment of, of revelation where you just say, God, if it depends on me, I'm not going to make it. If it really is about my endurance, I'm going to run out of batteries. Right? I just don't keep going and going but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If you uphold me, I'll be upheld. Now in verse 20, he says, you have an unction from the Holy One. Now, if you have the King James Bible, as I do, it will say unction. Now I think because the King James says unction, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what unction means. I've heard it many times said, actually, I've heard this explained as if unction were like some inner drive that you have, you know? Unction. <laughs> You've got unction from the Holy One, right? Like, a com like an engine or something. <laughs> You've got an unction from the Holy One. When really that's a very simple error with a simple remedy. If you look into the word, the word unction in the English is the transliteration from a Latin word that is ungient, ungentum, which means oil. That's all. Unction is a transliteration of a Latin word that sounds like unction. That means an ointment or an oil. You have an oil. Well, what he means here is you've been anointed with an oil. That's what he's trying to say here. You've been anointed with an oil. from the Holy One, if you're a believer in Jesus. And he says, in the King James, it says, and you know all things. I think 
a better translation from the Greek is, and you all know, you all know. You all, you all believers know. Every believer has an unction. Every believer has an anointing from the Holy One. And because of that anointing, you know. Now the oil, what does oil represent in Scripture? What does ungentum represent in Scripture? It represents, of course, the Holy Spirit. The oil is always a sign of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, those who were chosen by God to do this or that, those who were chosen by God were anointed with oil. And it represented the Holy Spirit coming upon them, setting them apart, and enabling them for that which they were chosen for. That's a simple reason people were anointed. They are chosen by God for something, and they were anointed for that task, which represented the Holy Spirit. And it's the exact same for Christians. Do you believe that you've been chosen by God for something? You've been chosen by God for salvation and for service in his kingdom. And you've been not only chosen, but because you've been chosen, you've been anointed. And that anointing sets you apart, makes you a saint. And that anointing enables you for that which you've been chosen for. It enables you for salvation. It enables you for service. That's what the anointing does. In the Greek, it's the word charisma. It's actually related to the word Christ. So in a sense, it says you've been christened by the Holy One. By that Holy Spirit, he's christened you, in a sense. And this is a contrast. It's a play on words with the Antichrist. They're Antichrist, and you're Christians. They're Antichrist, but because of the anointing of the Spirit, because of what the, the Father has given you in the Spirit, you are christened. And he's contrasting the false brethren with the true brethren here. Now, of course, how many of you were actually literally anointed with oil by God? Now, in, like the, in, the, in the fourth century, it was common to read in the Christian writings that this refers to baptism. But of course, this isn't referring to baptism, though they use this text to justify that kind of a practice. But look in verse 27. It says, it's the same word here as unction or as charisma as above. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you. This isn't something that's outward. He's not saying you've been smeared with oil and it's still on you after so many years. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. He's saying it abides in you. This is a spiritual inward thing that has happened. This anointing. It abides in you. And you don't need any man to teach you. In the Gospel of John, there's amazing similarities and parallels to what he's saying here. In 1 John, he talks about us receiving the anointing. The anointing which you have received, in verse 27, it abides in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. So there's three things in verse 27. He says the anointing you've received, number one, abides, number two, and you don't need anyone to teach you because it teaches you all things. And in the Gospel of John, when, Je when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he mentions those exact three things also. He says, the Holy Spirit, the world can't receive it, but you've received it. And it abides with you. He abides with you. And he teaches you all things. So I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that John is talking here about the Holy Spirit. The anointing, brothers and sisters, enables us to know the truth. Truth is known by the Spirit. If you know the truth, if you understand the gospel and have believed on the Son, it's because God has chosen you and anointed you by the Spirit and enabled you to understand that truth. There's some pretty shocking things here, isn't it? He says, you don't need anyone to teach you. Isn't that amazing? So, Eli, what are you doing up here teaching, right? What does that mean? I'll explain in a moment. Now, the cults claim this, don't they? Don't cults claim the kind of the same thing? Oh, well, you know, it's the Spirit that teaches us. We have some special knowledge that you don't have, and you know how we know it? God told me, right? 
Don't they use this kind of a concept? Yeah, it's great that you got the Bible. It's all good, well, and good. But there's something that you need to know from the Spirit, some special inner knowledge, more than adding to Scripture. But there's an extremely important verse here that should be highlighted in all your Bibles if you, if you do that. Verse 24. And look, this is the key here. This is such an important verse in this passage. In verse 24, he says, Let that... He doesn't tell you what that is. Explicitly. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning... If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you or abide in you, you also shall continue or abide in the Son and in the Father. So here's the amazing thing. What is that which you have heard from the beginning? We've already seen it in John, in the, in the, in the letter already. Chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. How does, what's the first word? That. This is the connection here. The that is the same in verse, chapter 1 and verse 1 as in chapter 2 and verse 24. That which we have heard from the beginning, that which we have seen and looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. You know what that is? It's the apostolic message. It's the revelation of the Father in the Son that the apostles, it was revealed to the apostles and now they're passing it on to us. They're saying, look, we have learned something from Christ. We've touched Him, we've seen Him, we've heard Him, and we've got a message for the world. We've got a message for all people. And guess what? This message means eternal life. This is eternal life when you believe it. And if you believe it, it means fellowship with the Father and the Son. This message. It's the gospel which reveals. Now, when I say it's the gospel, do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying when I say, why I say it's the gospel? Because some people say, what do you mean it's the gospel? That's just, the, that's just like, you know, Christianity 101. Don't you got to move on and get into the deeper things? What do you mean just it's the gospel? Isn't the gospel just Jesus died and rose again and now we're saved by grace? How, what are you saying it's just the gospel? That's just, that's just initiatory. That's just elementary. Let's move on. It's the gospel because it's this message that the Son of God, Christ, Jesus who is God and sent by the Father, came into the world to die for your sins and to save your sorry soul undeservedly and he saves you and accepts you by his grace that reveals who God is and reveals the Father reveals the essence of God through that story you'll never know God without that story don't ever think you'll know God by getting on your knees in a prayer closet for 24 hours. You know God through the story of the gospel. That's how you know God. And as we've seen already in John, even the youngest believer knows the Father. Whenever you read the word Father in Scripture, read that word to mean the revelation of who God is. No one knows the Father but the Son in whom the Son reveals. The Father is the revelation of the essence of God. And that's given through the gospel. So John says, you know what the Spirit does? You know what the anointing does? When you've been anointed with the Spirit or when the Spirit's done its work in you and enabled you to see, the Spirit doesn't add a thing. The Spirit points you to the apostolic revelation of the Father. That's what the Spirit does. It says, you, you, have a rev you have an unction from the Holy One. And so you're not going to depart. 
Now these guys, on the other hand, they departed, and they denied by their departing the Father and the Son. Who's a liar but he that denies Jesus as the Christ? He's an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. That's what the antichrists do. But you, on the other hand, you who are anointed, let that abide in you, which you've heard from the beginning, the gospel message, the, the apostolic message that reveals the Father. Simply let it abide in you. And if you let it abide in you, notice the order here. If you let the gospel remain in you, then you remain in the Father and in the Son. Because number one, you remain in the Son. And by remaining in the Son, you know the Father and remain in the Father. Does that make sense? Everything is connected. It's important for us to see that John writes in shorthand. Most of the apostles write in shorthand. We need to learn the connections and what he's saying here. False teachers deny the Son, and in so doing, they deny the Father. And there's many different forms that can take. Any twisted Christology essentially denies the gospel, which is a denial of the Son, which is a denial of the Father. So whatever it may be, now there's lots of argument about what the exact denial is here. Were these the Gnostics? Were they saying that Jesus was not really made of flesh, but he was just spirit? Or like the Jehovah Witnesses say, that Jesus isn't God at all? Or like the Mormons say, that Jesus is just your big brother? He's your example. It comes in many different forms. Or there's the liberal Jesus, the Jesus who's just an advanced man who's teaching us the way to, I could say, exaltation. Whatever the twist may be, whatever the error may be, whatever Christology they're presenting besides the true apostolic Christology and besides the true apostolic gospel, they distort and lose the revelation of the Father. Because guess what? If Jesus isn't divine, then you don't know God. He's just a man. You don't know God. God didn't die on the cross for you. Some man did. And most people who say he's not God deny the cross as well. Or if you deny the atonement of Christ and you maintain the divinity of Christ, then you don't know the Father because God didn't die for you on a cross. God just came and set you an example that you need to follow. That's the kind of God he is. He's just the kind of God that gives you what you deserve. You don't know God. You don't know God as the father, the prodigal son's father who runs down the road and embraces a wayward son. So whatever twisting it may be, brothers and sisters, see that it's a distortion of the gospel, the revelation of who God is. If you follow those teachers, you deny the Son. And if you deny the Son, you deny the Father. You don't even know God. Even though you claim to love God and you claim to know God, you don't know Him. Let it remain in you. If you have believed the gospel, if you believe that you're a sinner, that Christ, the Son of God, died for so you could be saved as a gift of grace, let that abide in you. Because that's the message that reveals the Father. If you abide in that message, you'll abide in the Son and in the Father as well. In verse 25, this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Eternal life. Like in John chapter 1, believe this message, it's all about eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 11 of 1 John says this. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son, the life is in the Son. That's shorthand for the true Son, right? An LDS person may say the life is in the Son, but they mean something different than the true gospel. The life is in the Son as he is revealed by the apostolic message. And he that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son of God has not life. 
And these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So eternal life is had by believing the apostolic truth about who Jesus is. Now let's look at one more thing here. Verse 27. What does it mean that you don't need any teachers? What does that mean that you don't need any teachers? John is now writing in verse 26 concerning those who would teach you another gospel, teach you another Christ, and so teach you another God. And now he says, you don't need anyone to teach you. Now here John again alludes to a verse that he has alluded to before in the Old Testament. So keep your finger in 1 John and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, which is of course the new covenant promise. This is clearly on John's mind. He's alluded to it before. He alludes to it again. All the New Testament authors are thinking about the Old Testament when they write. So John chapter 31 and verse 34. Jeremiah, Jeremiah thank you. A lot of names to remember. <laughs> Jeremiah 31. Of course, this is the part where he talks about the new covenant being promised. The epoch. And in verse 34, an extremely important verse, it says this. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For, because, because, why will they all know me? Because I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. If you have been forgiven of your sins, and let me tell you this, you can only be forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you. There is no forgiveness outside of that. But if you have been forgiven of your sins, you know the Father. You know him. You know God. The gospel is primarily about the revelation of who God is. God of love for sinners. God of mercy for sinners. A God of justice who punishes sin, but punished it in his son so that we could go free and be forgiven. You learn that through the story of the gospel. You believe it, you're forgiven, you know God. And you don't need anyone to teach you who God is. You don't need anyone to teach you who God is if you've been forgiven. If you're a Christian, if you're a true Christian who have believed, you don't need anyone to teach you. Because you know what? Christ has taught you. Christ has taught you who the Father is. Amen? Who teaches us who the Father is? Christ. How? By his words? No. By his death on the cross. By what he did. He taught us who the Father was. And so what John is cutting out here is that need for a man to teach you who God is. You don't need to go to church to learn who God is. You go to Christ to learn who God is. You might go to church to, go to, to learn to go to Christ. You don't need a preacher to tell you who God is. Hey, by the way, everybody, I got a revelation from God. This is who he is. You don't need that. You might need a preacher to tell you to look to Jesus. Jesus will tell you who the Father is. You look to him, he'll show you. But you don't need any man to teach you because that anointing, the Spirit who has anointed you and enabled you to see what? The apostolic message. Who points you to Jesus. 
who shows you the Father. And you don't need anyone to show you that if you've seen it through him. The anointing which you have received of him abides in you. You don't need any man to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth, it is no lie, even as it has taught you, abide in him. So brothers and sisters, if you have known the Father, just simply abide in that. Leave church this morning remembering who God is. Simply remember who God is. God loves you. He proved that by sending his son for you while you're yet a sinner. Remember. In conclusion, verse 28, John starts this little passage by saying, it's the last days. And now he finishes it by saying, Jesus is coming back. So yes, we're in the end times. Yes, eschatology is important. One of the reasons why you need to know about eschatology is because you're living in it and there's many antichrists, many people who are opposed to Christ. They're distorting Christ. They're distorting Christianity. And by doing so, they're robbing you of your salvation and they're robbing you of the knowledge of God. You need to be aware of this. This is the last days. And Jesus is coming back at the end of this time. Jesus Christ is going to return. And what are we to do in verse 28? Abide in him. Remain in him. How do you do that? You remain in him by remaining in the gospel, as verse 24 says. That we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him as his coming. This isn't talking about make sure you don't sin a lot and live your life a certain way so that when he comes, he's not going to be ashamed of you. He'll be ashamed of you if you turn away from the faith and you disbelieve. But if you remain in the truth and remain in Christ, you'll not be ashamed. So believe the apostolic message. It's that simple. Believe it. And as Paul says in Romans 10, 11, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Amen? Let's pray.